Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. This week, I'm your host, Charles Maxwood. I guess Gant had a power outage down in the South, wherever he's at. And so, yeah, I'm going to solo fly this one. So, yeah, I get to ask all my dumb questions and nobody gets to tell me their dumb questions. So there we go. We have a special guest this week. That is Mark Ryan. Mark, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Sure. Thanks, Charles. So thanks a lot for having me, having me on the show. I really appreciate it. I'm a data science manager at Intact Insurance in Toronto. And there I manage the team that does usage-based insurance. So this is creating a model that will predict somebody's future claim behavior with auto insurance based on their current driving behavior. So that's what I do during the, during the day. For the past couple of years, I've been working on a book on using deep learning with tabular structured data. So that book should be coming out shortly in the next couple of months from Manning Publications. And you'll have an interest in, in that, applying deep learning to structured data. Also have an interest in chatbots. And I got access to the GPT-3 model earlier this year. So I've had a lot of fun playing with that as well. And yeah, it's, that's the short version of me. Cool. Are you a software engineer trying to learn machine learning? then you should check out the course from Educative.io called Machine Learning for Software Engineers. It has 87 lessons, eight quizzes, 115 challenges, 163 playgrounds, and two code snippets. In other words, it's not just a set of videos that tell you how to do the thing. It actually walks you through all of the processes for machine learning. It gives you quizzes, it makes you do challenges. It's very hands-on. It's done with experts from companies like Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and Apple. And it is a terrific course that I've been learning to do machine learning. So go check it out at devchat.tv slash learnml. That's devchat.tv slash learnml. And that'll take you to the right place. So you can sign up for the course. I don't know what the GPT model is. So OpenAI came out. So there are this consortium. Elon Musk was involved mm -hmm. with funding of it, Microsoft yep. as well. So they had worked on a transformer-based language model last year called GPT-2. Oh, okay. And this was their, the marketing bit of this, we call it marketing. They said, this is so dangerous, so powerful, it's dangerous. You can't even release the whole thing because you don't know what's, how it's going to affect the world. And there was a big, big stink about that last year. And then they finally let it out into the, into the wild. So the GPT-3, this is something that, depending on how you measure it, is 10 times bigger. So it has over, oh, wow. over 170 billion parameters. So you can think of it like a, like a, a function that has that many parameters in it. Holy and cow. it's, yeah, and it's, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. Some of the stuff it can do. So people have shown some of the things they've done with it. They've been able to provide an English description and generate the HTML for a user interface. Wow. Do translation from English to French, generate code. So, and, and the, a couple of things are remarkable about it. One is that it can do a bunch of different things with no additional training. So up until now, machine learning models are basically, you know, you create them to do one thing, to uh, yeah. know, analyze an image, to turn audio into text, to do, a, to do a single thing. Yeah, this is correct. This is correct. This is correct. This is not correct. Yeah. This is not yeah. correct. Exactly. Yeah, and eventually you get something that goes, generally gets things right. Right. So GPT-3 does a lot of different things. So I've played with it myself. I created a, a very, you know, spent a couple of hours and came up with something that turns English language descriptions into Git commands. And, and, it, and it also, another thing I, I did was uh, use it to answer movie trivia. So I had worked earlier this year on a chatbot built in the Raza framework that uh, mm -hmm. did movie trivia. So you ask it a question like, 
the cast of the Ten Commandments, and it would come back with that list. I spent months training this. GPT-3 did this right out of the box. And it was oh, performance was equivalent to this Raza chatbot that I spent months writing. And that's just one of the thousands of things it can do. So it's it's pretty impressive. It's not perfect. It, it's it does some things that are a little bit unexpected, but in terms of its the breadth of applicability and what it can do basically out of the box, it's quite remarkable. And I think it's something that you we're gonna see additional generations of it that get better and better because it, the indications are as it you know, train with a larger training set, make a bigger model, and it'll be even more capable. Wow. I don't know how I feel about a system that can write code. A lot of my friends are going to be out of jobs. That's all I have to say. There's certainly been discussion about that. And people say, well, it, it's what, it, what it'll do is it'll make developers more effective. So you say, it's like, have you have a really good editor for, for coding or a really good environment for coding? It'll make you more, more effective than doing everything from scratch. That makes sense. If it makes me look smarter, I'm fine with that. <laughs> Very cool. Well, I, I kind of want to dive into the topic of your book. And, and specifically, it's a structured data. But you said like tabular. Um, right. Yeah, that was a deliberate thing. So the title of the book is is a little bit controversial. So by structured <gasps> data. Yeah, I know. You can't think controversy in the world of machine learning. It won't necessarily be the most interesting controversy. We'll have to train an AI to pick the right side of the controversy. <laughs> that's right. So it's basically data that's in rows and columns. So data that's in uh, an Excel right. spreadsheet, a relational database table, a CSV file. So it's that kind of structured data. So I said tabular structured data because you could say that image data or audio data is structured in a certain extent. But the book is about right. data that's in rows and columns. Right, because an image... I mean, I guess technically the image, like the pixels are in rows and columns, but the meaning isn't. The meaning isn't in the rows and columns. The meaning is in the overall picture. That's right. That's right. And so far, all the applications of the, the, the popular applications of deep learning, particularly for learning, for somebody learning about deep learning, have been in areas like image or unstructured text. Right. So what, what makes it different than having structured data versus unstructured data or, you know? So I said unstructured, but I don't know if that's even the right term. Anyway. Yeah, that's just, yeah. It, it, in my mind, yeah, that's that's a fair term. So it, the, the I guess there are a couple of things. One is that in some ways it's it's actually simpler. So there were some, there's some monkeying around that you need to do with the data for images, for example, to prepare it to train a deep learning model. And the tabular data still needs some preparation, but it's not necessarily as much. But the thing I think is really is, I guess there are two things I think that are compelling about it. One is most people in their day jobs are not dealing with images. There certainly are people who do that, but much many more people mm -hmm. are dealing with things that are in tables. So they're dealing right. with data that's in relational databases or in, in Excel. So if people want to be able to use deep learning or learn it in a way that's going to be meaningful for them, I think it's more useful to have something they can pick a problem that's actually part of their daily life it's more likely to be a, a problem where the data is characterized in tabular data than it's in some unstructured form like images or mm -hmm. uh, video or audio. So that's one thing. So it's it's the idea is that it's a little bit more motivating to go through the learning process for understanding how deep learning works if you're solving a problem that really matters to you. And then the other thing is when I was uh, learning deep learning myself, I wanted to use it for my job. I wanted to try and apply it. And the advice I got was, don't try to use deep learning with tabular data. 
in fact, I was listening to a podcast last week where somebody somebody said, so don't, don't, don't use it. It's not, not a good idea. And one of the arguments in the book is at, at least have an open mind. So I go through one of the right. chapters and I compare deep learning with a classical, more classical machine learning approach, XG Boost, and compare the performance between the two approaches. And you know there, there are pros and cons to both. So really the idea is not to immediately assume that deep learning won't be applicable for tabular data. And the other thing is there are, all, there are uh, in, industry examples of using deep learning with, with structured data. They're just not all that well publicized. So those are basically the two theses of the book. One is starting with tabular data makes it easier for somebody who's learning about deep learning to motivate them because they'll find a problem that actually matters to them. And the second is to have an open mind about applying deep learning to problems where the data is in rows and columns rather than just saying, well, we should always use a classical machine learning approach for tabular data. Right. So, yeah. So when you're training a deep learning system with tabular data, I mean, what does that even look like? So you go through, so in the book, the data set that I started with is a real world data set. And that's the other thing I wanted to make sure. I didn't want to have something that was a curated or kind of ready cleansed data set. I wanted to go out and find a data set in the real world with all the warts that that are there. So right. the data set I found was about delays in the streetcar system in Toronto. So it's an essential part of the transit system in Toronto. I think they're great. I think they're 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 really it's a really cool technology. The problem is when they break down, the rails are in the, are right on the road. So mm-hmm. when there's a an accident or some reason they 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 stop, they're delayed. It causes gridlock. So okay, a, when a a streetcar is stopped, it's a bigger impact than when a bus is stopped, or even sometimes when a subway car is stopped. So I thought if I could do something useful with this data, it could actually provide some real benefit because streetcar delays really have a multiplying effect on the health yeah. of the city, particularly pre-COVID. It's a little bit different now. Um, so there's this this data set. It has it currently has about ninety thousand records. There are thirteen columns. It has things like the date of the delay, the hour of the delay, what was the cause of the delay, how long the delay lasted. So a bunch of information about about the delay in in the columns. Mm -hmm. And the process going through first is clean up the data because it's a mess. This data was collected for some reason. It certainly wasn't to train a deep learning model. So you have to go through and clean clean it up. So just as as an example, the addresses, so the location where the delays occurred. You think that the the collection system would force you to put in something that was either a longitude and latitude or some kind of specific address. But that field's a freeform field. So somebody can put in different names for the streets. They can use nicknames. They can use a landmark. It's completely wide open. When somebody's recording what route the delay occurred on, that's also freeform. So they can put in routes that don't exist. They can, you know, it, it can be bad data. Something as simple as the direction. So the direction that the vehicle is going is important. And you know how many directions are there? <laughs> I was right. going to say four, and then I was four, like, no. exactly four. Okay, it's not, a, <laughs> it's not a trick question. So there are four, and maybe five to count for, for two directions. There were right. 15, 15 different values in that column because they had eastbound, E slash B, capital E slash B, all kinds of different ways of expressing the same thing. So that needs to be cleaned up so that it's consistent. So going through and cleaning up that data, getting rid of bad values, making values consistent, dealing with missing values, all that kind of standard dealing with the data. 
And it was interesting because this data set was such a mess. So go through and, and do that, get the, data, get the data cleaned up. And then the next, uh, the next step to look at is to say, well, this data set is just talking about the delays, but there are all kinds of other situations where there aren't delays. And it's important to be able to characterize those times as well. So mm -hmm. what you essentially have to do is take that 90,000 row table and expand it. It ended up being like two and a half million rows so that all the time slots when there were no delays are accounted for as well. And then that data gets, there's a few more steps to prepare it. For example, the one thing about uh, deep learning models is they can only be trained with numbers. So anything that is that isn't a number needs to be turned into a number. So I mentioned before right. about, the, about the compass points. So yeah. east, west, north, and south had to be converted into numeric identifiers. And then finally, there's uh, the, the internal format within Python. This, this whole system was written in Python. It needs uh -huh. to be converted so that it's in the format that's required by the, the deep learning engine, the model itself, which is, was written in, in Keras, Google's sort of front end for their a deep learning framework. And yeah, so that's basically of the book. Those are the first five chapters to go through that. And then the sixth chapter talks about the actual training process. So how to run experiments, how to set up experiments, how to efficiently use the, the resources that you have. And then there's a chapter on comparisons or other things. So like, what if we change something about the model? As well, as I mentioned before, a comparison between deep learning and XGBoost. So have a head-to-head -head comparison between those two approaches to the problem, comparing their performance, the complexity, their flexibility. And then the last chapter, well, the second last chapter talks about how you actually deploy it. Because one of the one of the flaws I've seen in information about deep learning in particular is they say, okay, here's how you prepare the data, here's how you train the model, and then okay, that's done. But the model by itself, if all it is is an object within a Python program, that's not something anybody can use. So the deployment part of it brings in a whole different set of technologies. So there, I show two different ways of deploying the model. One is creating a simple web interface, and the other is using a RASA chatbot along with Facebook Messenger. And that's just a way for people very simply to say, this is the streetcar trip I want to take. Is it going to mm -hmm. be delayed? And the model right. makes prediction and provides the prediction back. Interesting. And how accurate was your model? Pardon me? How, how accurate was your model? It's, it was that the, the high end was the high 70%. So oh, wow. You got 70 by 70, 78% on the high end. Now, it's only to be, it, it need to kind of, that's a good question to ask about the accuracy, but that's not the whole story. There's this idea of recall, which is basically how many times does it say, there's not going to be a delay when there will be a delay. Right. And that's the worst situation. If you're sitting there, you're, you're waiting for your transit to come. If it tells you it's going to be delayed, you take a taxi or an Uber or something or walk, you'll get to where you're going on time. But if it says it's not going to be delayed and it is delayed, that's really bad. That's really yeah. that, that kind of that undermines the credibility. That's the worst possible outcome. So yeah. uh, while the accuracy got up to there, focusing on that, that recall number, um, it was it was okay, but uh, you know there's there's more that could be done on that side. Now the data set with ninety thousand records, kind of going up to a two and a half million records once the the times when there's no delay is included. It's not a huge data set for deep learning purposes. Right. It's okay. It's within it's within the realm of possibility, but uh, having more data would be better.
And then there's the, I mentioned COVID before, like that's changed the traffic patterns completely. So the model was trained on data largely pre-COVID. COVID happens and that's going to disrupt the accuracy as well. Oh, interesting. So how, how did that change the accuracy? Like how did it affect the the underlying training and things like that or the underlying data? So the traffic patterns in, in Toronto in particular, in the center of the city where most of the streetcars are really changed with COVID. So the amount oh, of driving... Yeah. The amount of driving that happened during rush hour, just the, 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 it fell out in April of this year, in particular, April mm-hmm. and May. So right now we're seeing that overall driving is getting up to the level it was before, but people are driving at different times as opposed to all driving during during rush hour. Oh, interesting. That's, that's been a significant a significant change. And I think huh. that's made more generally, that's, there's, it's going to be a problem for machine learning in general, for anything that has to do with economic activity or traffic or, or th- those kinds of things that were affected by COVID. People are going to need to be careful about models that were trained prior to COVID or they get trained on data during COVID that we're not making predictions, let's say, in April of next year, if things start to get back to normal, based on right. data from April of this year. Where things were, <laughs> yeah. this like pathological data. It's it's very different from the the general purpose. Yeah, that makes sense. So, do you, with with the structured data, do you train these systems in the same way that you train systems with like images and stuff like that? It's so I'd say the architectures, the architecture in terms of the kinds of layers that are put together. In some ways, they're simpler. So the uh-huh. the the world class image systems will have various tricks people have learned over the last 10 years in particular. So you end up with models that can be fairly, fairly complex. They're well understood now, but they can be, they can be fairly complex. For structured data, the, the overall model is simpler, but what you can do is you can treat each column differently. So for example, column that the column I mentioned before about the, the directions on the compass, Mm -hmm. you treat that differently. So that goes through a different path in the model than the description of the address, something that's a freeform text column. And that's okay. different than how a number, like a temperature or an hour or something that's countable is treated. So one of the things that's, that's uh, interesting or useful about deep learning is you can categorize the columns. You can say, okay, these are the columns that count things. These are the columns that are categories like states of the US or uh, mm-hmm. seasons of the year. And these are the columns that are freeform text. And for each of those different classes of columns, you you run it through the, the model slate. It's, it's one big model, but it's taking different paths through the model. And that lets you take advantage of, for example, for the freeform text, you can take advantage of approaches in deep learning for extracting information out of freeform text, and then take a different approach for the different kinds of the different kinds of columns. So that's something I think that being that's different from the the situation for audio or video or images where you tend to have a single this like single a single signal coming in for tabular structured data you may have multiple signals coming in and you treat them slightly differently depending on the type of the column yeah that makes sense how do you test the system i'm i'm a little curious yeah how do you how do you verify that it's accurate or at least accurate enough right yeah. So there are two for the the, main, the general training of it. It's a standard machine learning approach. So you take that data. So the two and a half million records, you say, I'm going to set aside a third of them and uh-huh. I'm only going to train the model on two thirds. 
and then I'm okay. going to try. I'm going to take the third it's, ne it's never seen before and see what it, what its accuracy and recall is like on that third it's never seen before. So that's kind of the the basic way to test it. See how's the performance? How's it going? But then the real testing, the, the in terms of is it is it passing sniff tests is with the deployment. So mm -hmm. it gets put into a, a context of a a web page, and then you can say I want to take the Queen Street car eastbound at 8 a.m. this morning. Is it going to be delayed? And if it comes back and says no delay, you think, no, oh, that's probably not right. Like that's that's rush hour. Conversely, uh -huh. if you say I want to I want to take one of the further out streetcars, so uh, Kingston Road westbound at midnight on a Sunday, and it comes back and says no yeah. delay, you think, okay, that's probably that's probably passes a credibility check. So there are kind of two stages. One is as the model is being trained, save some data to exercise the model. And then once it's deployed, actually try some some cases. And I, what I've tried to do is is pick cases that kind of push either either on the edge of when I'd expect there to be a delay, or things that are a bit anomalous, like is uh, right. during rush hour on a route that isn't that busy, or in the middle of the day on a route that's busy, to mm -hmm. see whether it's going to predict a uh, delay or not. That makes sense. So, what kinds of problems are well suited for this? Because I could see, for example like stock data coming in in a tabular form, but it's affected by things, I guess so is the traffic, right? That may or may not show up in the tabular data. So yeah, how do you know if this is a good candidate, you know, your methodologies and techniques are a good candidate for my problem versus using maybe a little bit different approach? Yeah, that's, that's really important because there is an investment to be made in the deep learning. So asking that question about whether to use or not is important. So the first thing is how big the data set is. And this data set with you know, 70,000 or 90,000 records to begin with is kind of in the range. You get down to 10,000 records. I know there's been some work done on training deep learning models with small, that, that small number of records. I think that's probably not going to work. You need to at least have multiple tens of thousands of records. So that's kind of the starting okay. point. I think the table needs to have a certain level of complexity. So you've got a table that has you know, customer ID, account number, amount of last track transaction, date of last transaction, there's probably not enough signal there to be interesting. And it's simple mm -hmm. enough that a more a simpler approach probably would be better for solving the problem. Okay. So having a table that's where there are a range of different types of columns and enough columns to be interesting, where enough is you know in the double digits, that kind of a thing. And then I think the and this as it turned out, the data set that I used for the book there, there were not any freeform text columns that the model is trained in. But I think something that would be having freeform text. So you can imagine a, a table that's a description for a retail, an online retailer, where they have the item, the cost of the item, the color of the item, and then a description of the item where the description mm -hmm. is freeform text. That's the kind of thing where I think there's there's real potential for using deep learning because you can apply what I said, as I said before, take different paths through the model for different kinds of columns, that ability to do and to take advantage of the power of deep learning on freeform text in the context of the rest of the model is really powerful. So I'd say that's something that would really make a difference. If the problem includes freeform text as one of the columns, it could really boost the idea of the investment in deep learning. Okay. That makes sense. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system 
to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. Is there anything else that I didn't think to ask about that is relevant to this? Well, I think we talked a little bit about the the controversy. So yeah, there definitely are people and they've been involved. They're, they're kind of side Twitter wars because they have Twitter wars about machine learning. They don't tend to be all that passionate, but have been involved in some minor Twitter wars, people saying, look, just don't use deep learning for tabular structured data. So there, that's kind of the conventional wisdom is people saying, you know, use XGBoost, for example, and that'd be the go-to for, for structured data. Uh-huh. But having an open mind about it. And the other, the other thing is, and the argument I make in the book is deep learning has become a much easier to use, even in the time that I've been writing the book. So it's been two years now. It's become easier to use. So a couple of a couple of things there. There are some really good cloud-based environments for, for doing deep learning where you can get access to the hardware to get access to GPUs for uh, for training the model. And it's it's pretty cheap. Google provides Colab for free. Now you don't you can't always get all the resources you need there, but it's you know, the price is right. Right. Uh, paper, paper space is an environment that's just laser focused on experiments with deep learning. And those those environments tend to be in the range of a dollar an hour. So they're not totally free, but it's it's pretty cheap. And then there are the standard cloud environments, AWS, Azure, IBM Cloud, Google Cloud Platform. And they all provide reasonably well-structured environments for doing deep learning experiments. So that's that makes it easy for somebody who doesn't have the background or doesn't necessarily have resources. They don't work for a big university or a company that's specialized in tech. You can still get access to these environments for doing deep learning relatively easily and relatively cheaply. Then the other thing is the training that what's, that's available for somebody who's not a specialist to get what they need about deep learning has, has really improved. So uh, Jeremy Howard and his team put on the Fast AI course. So this is a course they do for university and they make the material for the course and videos for the course freely available. And it's a fantastic service. Like it's, it's just great. It's really focused on coding, very practical examples. And they've created a platform also called Fast AI that lets you get that hit of a, getting a solution really, really quickly. So it's, it means that somebody who's coming in from the outside hasn't used deep learning before can get to the point where they're actually seeing some of the magic very, very quickly. And that just wasn't there. You go back to 2017, 2016, those kinds of educational opportunities just, just weren't there. Right. So those things together, having the environments for doing, for doing deep learning much more accessible and cheap, really good training available and maturity of the platforms is really helped. And one thing that specifically, so there, there's sort of two major platforms for, for deep learning. There's uh, PyTorch and mm-hmm. uh, the TensorFlow environment. Right. And last year, TensorFlow and Keras, which is the, had existed for, I guess, the last five years as a high-level API for deep learning, they came together. So now right. they're, 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 they're wedded, they're a single project. And that's, that really helps because it makes, in that, in that coming together, TensorFlow has become easier to use and Keras being a, a, a first-class citizen in the TensorFlow world helps as well. So right. though that's, that's, a, that's a real game changer, in my opinion, in making Keras accessible as a, 
a platform for people who are, who are learning about deep learning and starting to use it. Yeah, cool. Very cool. And it's remarkable. You know, th- this whole thing kicked off in 2012. So it's uh-huh. like eight, eight, eight year, in eight years, it's gone from being something where people basically, there are people with PhDs who had studied in a university environment for years who were using it. And now it's reached the point where somebody with, you know, reasonable programming skills and a little bit of background in calculus and linear algebra. And it doesn't take that much. It's, it's a it's relatively small yeah. amount can, can take advantage of this technology and, and use it to solve real problems. It's remarkable. It's, it's a, it's a yeah. remarkable revolution. Yeah. It's funny because like in all the conversations we've had so far for this show, I feel like half the time, you know, we get through the conversation and I'm just like, yeah, this stuff's all black magic. And then the other half of the time, after talking to somebody, I'm like, my sixth grader could figure this crap out. <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of it's, interesting how it's come along. We say, yeah, take the, the photo that, that Lawrence Maroney, who was on, on one of your shows uh, earlier, was mm-hmm. talking about this. And he, he explained it. It's basically, it's, you know, Y equals MX plus B, and you're solving for M and B. But it's a really, it's, it's a much bigger formula you're solving for. Yeah. So I think people have been misled a little bit because there's a interpretability aspect to deep learning. Uh-huh. People can't always explain why the model behaves the way it does. And people have sometimes extrapolated from that to, well, there's something here that's either mysterious or it's mm-hmm. closer to human cognition than it actually is. It's a party trick. It's a fantastic party trick. It's an abs- It's a game-changing party trick, but ultimately it's a... It's a little bit of calculus, linear algebra, and lots and lots and lots of computing power, big data sets coming together, and you can do some pretty amazing stuff. Yep. Yeah, it's it's funny because, yeah, I mean, if you boil it down, it's essentially all of this stuff is in the lines and all that stuff isn't in the lines. And so let me show you a whole bunch of stuff that's in the lines and not in the lines, and I'll tell you which is which. And then the the computer just turns that all into numbers and then estimates. Yeah, but when you when you have it at scale, or you know, I was talking about GPT, yeah. but it can do. Then you really see this is this is remarkable. And when something yep. when something like GPT three, which is trained on a significant subset of the internet, so you know, hundreds of millions of web pages, mm-hmm. it's it's pretty remarkable. And some of the stuff yep. it can do, you have to think, wow, it's this. You remind yourself. It's the party trick. It's not actual cognition that's going on here, but uh, yeah, it's it's change. It's yep. and the impact. There were some articles. I guess you go back uh, a year ago, two years ago, saying we've reached peak deep learning, and we've kind of maximized what it's capable of doing. And now we have to go to something else. I don't think you know. I I can. I think people are right when they say it has some intrinsic limitations, uh-huh. and I would. Nobody can really say are we going to reach the singularity is is agi actually possible nobody knows that and i certainly think it's a pretty tough argument to say deep learning will be the path towards it nevertheless there are some really important problems that can be solved with deep learning and i think there we've just scratched the surface there are yeah. so many more things that can be done with it the the applicability has just has just started and you know my argument is if we could apply it to these all this data that's in tables it would really, it would make a, a huge difference. And people oh, would yeah. argue, they say, well, of, of all the data in the world, more than 80% of it is not tabular. It's unstructured. That's true. But that 20% that's in tables, that's what the banks run on, the insurance, every government, every bank, every insurance yeah. company. I'm sure you and I, in the course of our that's, daily lives, 
that's all the stuff that we're keeping track of because we care about all that stuff's in tabular right. data. That's right. So in just doing your daily life, there are probably hundreds of tables that get in various systems that get updated as you're just just doing yeah. doing what you do. So tapping into that or not limit not saying that that data is just off out of bounds for the the power that deep learning can apply. I think that's an argument worth making. Yep, absolutely. Why don't you tell us about your book here for a minute? Sure, sure. So it goes through, like I said, before, it goes through from a, it works through an, an example based on the Toronto uh, streetcar system delays there. And it goes from the very beginning to the very end, from a raw data set to a deployed model. And uh, it leads people step, step by step. And it has an accompanying Python set of Python programs with a little, a little bit of web and chatbot framework in the, in the deployment part. So it goes through chapter by chapter, explaining the process, cleaning up the data, building the model, training the model, running experiments on the model, and then deploying the model. And then the last chapter talks about ways to expand, both ways to expand that particular problem. So some aspects I didn't look at, like weather. So there's there are APIs available to get current, get historical weather as well as current weather. And that's going to be a factor in whether or not traffic is delayed. So a snowstorm in Toronto is going to be a factor in whether or not streetcars are going to be delayed. So we could incorporate that. It talks about incorporating uh, geographic information as well. So that's another potential way to expand, expand the model, as well as some other tweaks on the existing data. And then it talks about how to take the same approach to a completely different data set. So how would this approach be applied? And I'm currently working as a, an adjunct to the book on a project for Manning that will be looking at a, an Airbnb listing data set from New York City. So it's taking the same approach on a tabular data set that has information about Airbnb listings in New York and how you can use it to predict the price of a listing based on what neighborhood it's in, what the, the size of the listing, various other information about the listing. So that's, and then there's a, an appendix that talks about how to use Google Colab. So there are a couple of in, environments recommended in the book for the code example. And one of them is Google Colab. So there's an appendix that just goes through the basics for somebody who hasn't done, hasn't used Colab, but how to, how to get set up and how to use it efficiently. And through the book, I've tried to keep the, keep it accessible. So I chose Keras as the deep learning framework because that's, mm -hmm. that's reasonably accessible. It's very well documented as a huge huge community so it's good for somebody who's learning python as the as the programming language because that's kind of the lingua franca for lingua lingua franca for machine learning introduced a couple of other python libraries folium as a library for creating maps from python so doing visualizations mm -hmm. so there's the book has a couple of heat maps to show these are the parts of the city where delays are concentrated and a, a library called flask for web serving so I mentioned before that one of the things in the, there's a, a chapter that talks about deploying the model, making it available for other people to use. And one of the approaches is using Flask, which is a, a simple framework in Python that lets you serve web pages. So that, that shows you say how to create a, a web page. And it goes right from the, from the ground up saying, here's what the HTML looks like, here's what the JavaScript functions look like, and how to use Flask to invoke the model, prepare the data, get a, get a prediction from the model, and then show that prediction in the web page. And I think that step is something that's that's missing in a lot of the 
education and documentation about deep learning because people assume the person who's going to be doing the deployment will be somebody different than the person who's who's training the model, which certainly can be the case. But I think that leaves the deployment part as a bit of a mystery. Yeah. And I mentioned before about the the cloud environments, Azure and AWS, and they've made certain pro- they made a certain amount of progress in deployment of models, but it's it's not easy. So I, I tried to use AWS to deploy the model that I describe in the book. And there's a big, long tutorial that AWS provides. So here's how you take a Keras model and deploy it. And you get halfway through and it says, well, it can, the model needs to, it won't work with a multi-input model. That is, when I mentioned you know, that there are, right. each, each column is kind of an input to this model. Well, it only works with a single input model, which would be great for images or freeform text, but doesn't work for columnar data. So that's why I really wanted to make sure I, I let people like step-by-step through the deployment process. It's a very, very simple deployment. It's not something that would be used in a, a production environment, but it does show the concepts for, of, of how you do deployment, prepare the model and, and make it available to a wider audience. Right. Very cool. Well, now I've worked to deal out with Manny. So they have given me, how do I put it? Licenses essentially to your book. So if somebody wants to get your book, I have five copies I can give away of the ebook. So if you go to, what's a good word? Tabular. I like that. So if you go to devchat.tv slash tabular, then you can enter your email address to enter the contest. There are other ways to get more entries like sharing the, you know, on Twitter or Facebook or things like that. Um, And then if you wind up not winning, then I do have a discount code for 35% off anything at Manning. And you could just use that to go buy the book. But I, I really, I, I'm, I'm really loving like all of the terrific content that's out there. Manning has a ton of just awesome books about machine learning. And, you know, we've been interviewing some of the authors. So we talked to Nick Chase last week and he has the machine learning for mere mortals. And so, yeah. I want you all to get this stuff. I want you to go study it. I want you to learn it. I want you to understand it. And so, yeah, if you want to get Mark's book, go and enter the contest. It'll be up for two weeks. Then we'll announce the winners. We'll send out the redemption codes. And then you'll be able to actually go get it if you didn't win it for 35% off. Sound good? Fantastic. And you're right. I think Charles, I totally agree. And I'm somewhat biased, but I think Manning does a great job. There's some fantastic content they make available. So it's uh, pretty well any technology area that you're interested in that's current, you'll find something on their their site that'll provide a good, either for for beginners, for experts. There's a a great deal to be learned and they've got a fantastic online platform as well for uh, for serving the content. Yeah. Yeah. I love buying the eBooks, especially from them because they get delivered. They are well formatted. And some of the other ones, and and these are by big publishers too. You know, I get them and I'm just like, come on, really? The formatting's awful. There's bugs in them. Manning does a terrific job. They really do. I mean, sometimes you get some of the uh, early access, you know, and there's a typo or something, but it's early access. You know, by the time they release these things, uh, you know, full scale, they are there. And, and getting them and reading them as they're being written is terrific too, so... I just can't say enough good things about them. And I'm really looking forward to diving into this book and just seeing, you know, how this is all all goes together because I like the idea of working through a real world problem and getting something that I can actually go test out. 
And then I guess I'll have to go fly to Toronto and actually get on a streetcar and see. You see, it. you can test it. Yeah, you get your mobile yeah. phone out, the, the Facebook application and see. Like, is it going to be delayed or not? Yeah. Yep. Good deal. Uh, Mark, if people want to connect with you personally, are you on Twitter or GitHub or somewhere where people can find you? Sure. Yeah, I'll share my uh, GitHub, Twitter, and LinkedIn Sounds direction, good. Steve. So you can share that and uh, welcome people to uh, to do that. And I just want to say, any folks who are in the Toronto area, as I said, my day job is with Intact, and uh, we're looking for some great data scientists. So I'll put a little plug in there. Uh, get in touch with me on LinkedIn if you're in the in the GTA, and uh, you want to work at a fantastic company doing interesting stuff. Nice. Yeah, just drop those links to Twitter and stuff in the chat, and we'll make sure they wind up in the show notes. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. Now, the final segment of this show is picks and picks are just shout outs about things that we're working on that we're excited about, et cetera, et cetera. A couple of things that I'm working on lately that I want to shout out about. One is the Podcast Growth Summit. It's not super applicable to this audience, but I know that a few people have asked me about growing their podcasts. So if you're looking at growing a podcast, put uh, podcastgrowthsummit.co. And yeah, we, I am talking to all kinds of people with podcasts in all kinds of different areas. And it has been really terrific. And I'm really looking forward to growing these shows, you know, using some of the stuff that they talked about. The other one, and I'm hoping to have this together by the time the, the show goes live, but mostvaluable.dev. So the other thing that I get asked about a lot is, hey, how do I stay current? Or how do I level up? How do I know what to level up on? How do I, you know, how do I become a senior developer? And my answer is usually, you don't just want to be a senior developer, you want to be the developer that's kind of the go-to person on your team for a variety of topics. And so I translate that to mostvaluable.dev or mostvaluable.dev, right? It's kind of like being the MVP on your team. And so I'm going to be putting together a podcast over there uh, at Most Valuable Dev. Also going to be putting together content on how to level up. So anyway, so I'm really excited about this project. I'm going to be putting together a 30-day challenge. We did that for JavaScript with Kyle Simpson. But I'm going to be doing this for developers. And it's basically going to be a, a reboot your career or like, a, what do they call it at the beginning of the sports season? Like a boot camp or... Anyway, it's going to be something like that. And it's just going to be a 30-day boot camp where it's, hey, look, figure out where you want your career to go, figure out what the next steps are, figure out what you need to be learning. And then here is a system for actually learning it and evaluating yourself to know whether or not you've learned it well enough. So that's that's what I'm putting together. I have most of the pieces in place. It's just a matter of, yeah, just recording a few more videos so people know where to go and what to do. But yeah, I'm putting that together and that should be up here within the next few weeks. And I think this goes out in two weeks. So I, I guess I have my work cut out for me. And then the last pick I have is I've been listening to the Wheel of Time books by Robert Jordan. I've I've listened to him a bunch of times on Audible, but I really enjoy him. Fantasy novels, great books. It's kind of how I got into Brandon Sanderson's books because he was sort of tapped to finish the series. He wrote the last three books based on Robert Jordan's notes and things like that. So... Anyway, I'm really enjoying that. And that's just kind of uh, allowing me to kick back and relax. So I'm going to pick that. Mark, do you have some picks? 
Very cool. So it's, it's going to be hard to top that list. That's a lot. That's a lot that's happening over over the next little while. I guess I'm, one of the things I've been getting into recently is there's some uh, some of the documentaries on on Netflix. So this is mm-hmm. a standard kind of COVID COVID situation. So there's some uh, there's some stuff there. It's hard hard to pick out the gems, but there's some there's some good good material there for sure, and. I guess uh, this is this is a little bit. It's a bit of a specialty item. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with the idea of a marmite thing. So you either love it or hate mm-hmm. it. And yep. uh, there's a new series of uh, spitting image. It's a kind of a, a puppet show from the UK, which uh, satirizes politicians. And there's a little bit of stuff to satirize about politicians these days. So I've been I've been watching <laughs> that again, kind of spitting on which side. They 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 they, they take both sides. They 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 try to be equal opportunity offenders. Those are the so, best ones. Yeah. So it's uh, it's the the writing is pretty sharp, and there's some great the the uh, characterizations, the voice impersonations are pretty good. So they do a Boris Johnson that's really really funny. So I'm enjoying that. I'll, I'll have to check that out. I'm a little curious, you know, because I mean, we hear about Boris Johnson here, but we get pretty mired down in our own politics. Why would, how, why would that be? Is there something happening in the States these days? <laughs> yeah. We, we right. get, I bit that news up in Canada. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What I'm wondering, though, is how much do the politics in the UK filter over to Canada? Not probably a bit, a little bit more than the States. Not that much. One of the things that's a bit interesting right now is the leader of the opposition. So he's not currently the prime minister, but the leader of the opposition is pushing an idea called Kanzuk, which is a closer association between Canada, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand. And I don't know whether that's going to happen, but the idea of being able to to move and live in those different countries, which is one of the selling points of it, mm-hmm. would be pretty cool. So we, we see if if that does if that gets some legs, then there'll be a lot more about. UK politics in Canada, but right now it's a bit of a it's a bit of a specialty, a bit of a specialty right. taste. Right. So yeah, it it I guess not as far as the EU, but it'd be something sort of like the EU in the sense that you can travel and. I guess to... so. I, I I wouldn't brand it as the EU because then I think the folks in the UK are probably going to say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! We just got out of the last one. We don't want to get." Yeah, it. yeah. You're not stapling another economies another together, but another one like that. So yeah, yeah. It's it's a little vague right now, but the idea is yeah. that these are countries that there's some economic, mm-hmm. uh, natural connections there. They all happen to have the same head of state as well, which yes, is true. Uh, the Queen. Yeah. So. We'll see. We'll see. I guess this uh, the guy Aaron O'Toole will have to become prime minister first to move the ball in, in Canada. And we have a certainly a Marmite politician in Justin Trudeau. So people love him or hate him, but he's uh, he's not a, a shrinking violet by any means. So get, knocking, <laughs> knocking him off the post will not be an easy thing to do if, yeah. if that's what it takes for Kanzak to become real. Interesting. I hadn't even heard that, but uh, I guess it doesn't really affect us here in the U.S. So. Yeah, and I guess yeah, no, there's there's a there's a lot uh, there's a lot going on, but it's amazing. yeah, we're you know we're yelling at each other over other things. Yeah, but you know it's still it's an amazing the exercise in democracy is really it's amazing. Yeah. I know there's a lot of a lot of stress and, and angst about it, but as an outside observer, it is really uh, something to see and to see people being enthusiastic about voting and you know democracy in action is uh, some heat. But it's uh, it's very it's very interesting, very interesting to see, and you know it's, it's I guess it shows in a way it may sound a bit a bit, a bit strange. It shows some of the greatness of America, mm-hmm. even in that even in that heat, even in that 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 dissension. Yeah. There's a there's a genius in that. So 
I hope that uh, the outcome on Tuesday is something that is, uh, you know, that, that, that goes well. And, you know, hope we can, uh, can all, learn, all learn from this exercise. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, once again, we are uh, devchat.tv slash tabular. And, you know, go register to get Mark's book. And yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to go watch this puppet show because <laughs> I just looked it up and just the, just the images of it look fantastic. So, yeah. well, hope, hope you enjoy it. Well, Charles, thank you so much. I really enjoyed speaking with you. It's a fantastic podcast. I really, really enjoy it. Get a lot of value out of it. So thanks for the service you're providing the community. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me. And uh, thanks to the audience. Yeah, thank you. All right, folks, you heard the man. We're done. And until the next time, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.